one of our offering videos was my second favorite Christmas song. Guess which one is my first? And by the fact that half of y'all were singing along, I'm guessing it's probably ranking pretty high for many of you as well. All we need now is a cellist and a better drummer, and we can copy that, right? Um, let's pray. God, you're good to us. Thank you for gathering your church today. Thank you for giving us the privilege of singing your praise. But God, we want more than just song. We want you. And so as we open up your word together, would you do something with it that I never in my wildest imagination could do? Breathe life into it. I'm not smart enough. I'm not creative enough. I'm certainly not funny enough. But you are the God who applies your word. And so as we open it up together, do big things. Encourage us. Admonish us. Call us yours. Move us and change us. We know you're big enough. We know you want to do it. So help us get there. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. It's the very last book of the Old Testament. Many of you have never turned there before, and that's okay. You get to read it today. Malachi chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit, but they move fast, and I'm, I'm told by some of our uh, more experienced saints that the font is small, so you may want to look it up yourself. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles uh, scattered around the room. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that sucker home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word to make himself known to his people, and so we want you to know God, and so uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one and start reading it, and I'll call it a win at least. Uh, uh, our budget guy may get a little mad at me, but we'll just go buy more Bibles. That's how it works, all right? Uh, but we are going to do all kinds of stuff today. Uh, we've got... Uh, well, this is the last character of the Old Testament that we're going to look at. All year long, we have been in a series that we're calling the story of God. And the premise of that series is really, really simple. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. But not just like the New Testament, not just the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. We also believe that like the story of Adam is really about Jesus. And the story of Moses is really about Jesus. And the story of Samson somehow is really about Jesus. And if you, if you read their stories correctly, you walk away from their story super excited about who Jesus is and what he's doing. All right? And so it's one thing for me to make that claim, though. It's one thing for me to, to just say, oh, yeah, the whole Bible's about Jesus. It's another thing for me to prove my work. And so to, to do that, to flesh that thesis out, we've been taking a slow walk through the major characters of the Old Testament and asking the question, how does their story point us to Jesus? How does it tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? Now, we could have just as easily spent our time looking at major themes of the Old Testament. We could have looked at the sacrificial system. We could have looked at the tabernacle. We could have looked at how God used prophet, priest, and king. We could have looked at uh, redemption, the scope, throughout the scope of, uh, of the Old Testament. And those could have served our purposes really well as well because those all are shadows of a Jesus to come that we need to be paying attention to. But for our purposes throughout the series, we've chosen to do character stories. And today, we get to look at our last character in the Old Testament. So who is it? Malachi, the guy the, the book is named after, right? All right, so the question of how does their story point us to Jesus, how does their story point us to the much larger story of God is a complicated question. And to make it simpler, we've been breaking it down to four smaller questions, and this will be the last time we walk through this. So you've got to get this one right, right? There's no more shot after this. 
What are our four questions? How was this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And preach the gospel. How does this, y'all are getting better. Maybe we should do this series next year. I don't know. All right. Y'all ready to look at Malachi this morning? Malachi. Not Malichi, as some person I know <laughs> likes to jokingly call him Rachel Booker. <laughs> Malachi. Well, let's round out his profile. A proper sacrifice, my messenger, a future promise. Y'all ready to jump into question number one this morning? Good. All right. So how was Malachi raised up? Well, in order to answer that question faithfully, it's been helpful for us the last several weeks because of the complicated nature of this part of of Old Testament history. It's been kind of helpful for us to kind of give a a recourse real fast of those who are uninitiated, right? So um, the Jews living in Judah are walking uh, in sin, and God tells them he's going to judge them because of that sin by raising up a country out of the north to come in and overthrow them. And so who's that country? Babylon, the nation of Babylon raised up by, or led by a king named King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so uh, the empire of Babylon comes in eventually, God raises them up, God allows them to come in and absolutely decimate the city. They tear down the wall, they tear down the temple, they haul away a bunch of Jews into captivity over in Babylon, so they're a far away, a long way from home. But listen, Babylon isn't the star of the show. God's not... God's just using Babylon. So it's not long after that that God raised up another guy, uh, a guy named Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, who unites the Mede and the Persian empires together, the the nations of Medo uh, and Persia together to form the Medo-Persian Empire, because I'm sure you remember that from like high school history, right? And, And they come in and they whoop up on the Babylonians. And so now, it's no longer Babylon, it's Persia. The Jews are in Persia. They hadn't gone anywhere. Their life is still pretty much the same. They're just in Persia now. That's the way it works. Right? But last week we looked at the story of Ezra. Ezra is this incredibly interesting guy. God moved in the heart of a guy named Cyrus the Great to send the Jews home. And over the course of about a hundred years, Waves of Jews start moving back from Persia to Judah. God raises up a guy named Zerubbabel, and he leads a wave back, and, and they go and rebuild the temple. It takes them a while to get there, like 50 years actually, to get there. And, and, but they finally get the temple built, and they start celebrating the sacrifice again, and all these kinds of things. And then God raises up a guy named Ezra, and Ezra goes back, and, and he recenters God's people around God's word. And then God raises up a guy named Nehemiah, and Nehemiah goes back as like this governor-type figure. He's not, a, he's not the spiritual guy. He's more like the politician, but he goes back and makes sure that the wall gets rebuilt. And God raises up these three guys to, to kind of restart, if you want to say it that, that way, the, the nation of Judah. So now God's people find themselves living again in the promised land. But from this point on in the story of the Bible, it's just different. It's not the same as it was before. For, forever gone are the golden days of a sovereign nation with God's appointed king doing what they feel like they ought to do. The God's people, that God's covenant people now find themselves living in a far-off province of one pagan empire after the next. First it was 
the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And you got this kind of like seven-year period, if you, if you don't know your Old Testament history well. you got this kind of seven-year period where there's a revolt led by the, these people named the Maccabees. But that's like seven years out of like 700 years of history. God's people aren't really free. There's this new reality for them. They're not making their own rules. They are a, a faraway province in somebody else's empire. So, happily ever after, right? I thought they were coming back from the exile. I thought things were going to be restored back to normal. I mean, the temple's there, the wall's there, they've got God's word, but something's off, right? And so, so what does this have to do with, with guys like Malachi? Well, we think that Malachi was a contemporary of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We think. We think that his story is playing out at the same time period uh, this return from exile at the tail end of Old Testament history. And I keep saying think because we're not honestly 100% sure. Like there's no clear thing in Malachi's letter that would tell us exactly when he wrote it. Like we get to do that with most Old Testament letters. They, they, they position it based on some king that they're going to name or, or some empire that's going on here. Malachi doesn't actually name that stuff. There's good reason for us to think that he's a contemporary. There's, there's clues that we can point to, evidence that we can point to, but we're not like a hundred percent sure when Malachi was written. But we think, we think that it's at the same time period as Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And if you remember last week, when we looked at Ezra, we said then that the political problems weren't the biggest things that they had to deal with. There was a spiritual issue that was way worse. They had, they had begun to do some good things again. When we looked at Ezra last week, we talked about how they had begun to make sacrifices in the temple again, but they didn't really know what they were doing, right? They had begun to do some good things, but their hearts were still far from God, and it showed, right? And so God raises up a, a prophet named Malachi during a season that I would describe as a casual pseudo-religiosity. So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that they've got some good things going on, but it's all smoke and mirrors. They're twisting knobs and they're pulling cranks, doing things that they think will please God, but they really have no idea who He is. They're playing the spiritual game, but it's empty. It's, it's terribly empty. And so that's the scene that Malachi steps into. God raises him to, to prophesy against the people following religious actions who are still far far from him. And, and what's interesting about Malachi's prophecy is that it's kind of structured in a, in a hypothetical dialogue. There's this back and forth, a, a, a question and an answer, a response and an, and an answer. But it, I said hypothetical for a reason because it, what's interesting, most interesting about it is that the people aren't actually talking. God is putting words in their mouth. But you will say, but you say, but you say, over and over again, all throughout Malachi. It's this weird back and forth, but you never actually hear the people talk. God's just saying, well, you're going to say this, and then I'm going to say this, and then you're going to say this, and I'm going to say this. And so the question we have to ask is, is God smart enough to do that? Like, if I put words in your mouth, it's kind of rude, right? And probably missing the point of what you're actually thinking. But we're talking about the God who knows what they're thinking before they think it, right? So when God puts words in their mouth, it's probably actually exactly what they were thinking. And so we get this back and forth dialogue in Malachi. Let me show you what I mean. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. 
the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declared the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Okay, so if you don't have much of a background with the Bible, you're probably a little confused right now, right? you got two characters here, Jacob and Esau, and, well, Esau doesn't look like he's faring too well. So what gives? Well, God is referencing the fact that, that he has been working redemptively through this one family for a very, very long time, all the way back in the days of Abraham. And so God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise to, to Abraham, and says, I'm going to bless you in spite of you. I'm going to love you in spite of you. I'm going to give you this, 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 and this in spite of you. And he begins to work down Abraham's family line. Abraham has a son. Abraham's son has a son. All right? Jacob and Esau are these twin brothers. And God chose to work powerfully and carry his promise through one brother. Which one? Jacob. He renamed him Israel and his family became the nation of Israel. But what about Esau? Well, the point here is not that God is looking to be mean to Esau, but that neither one of them deserve anything from God. Not a bit. Like Jacob had his problems, so did Esau. Both of them are sinners. Both of them deserve something from God, but it's not kindness. And yet, what does God do for Jacob? He loves him in an effectual way. He blesses him. He empowers him. He is powerfully and effectually forever changed by God's love. He didn't deserve a thing, but God gave it to him anyways. And so, by referencing this story here, God's, God's pointing out to, to them, coming out of exile, this, this covenant people of God, He's pointing out to them that they don't deserve anything either. Think they position themselves in such a way that God is beholden to bless them? Not a bit. Israel could have just as easily been in the same category as Esau, but, but no, God, God says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to take care of you in spite of you. In spite of you. Just like he did with Jacob. But let's keep reading. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is, this not, uh, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 10, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Okay, so we see here the, pretty much the same theme as we saw with Ezra last week, right? They're beginning to do these religious actions, but, but their hearts are still far from God. Things, the things that they've been commanded to do from God, right? 
Like they're making sacrifices. Like they're making sacrifices again in the temple. That's a good thing, right? Did God command them to make sacrifices in the temple? Yeah. By failing to make sacrifices in the temple, would they have been disobedient to God? Yeah. So they're, they're literally doing the thing that God wants them to do. But there's a big problem, right? What's the problem? They're using inferior animals to do it. They're, they're intentionally bringing blind, lame, and sickly animals for their sacrifice. That is not a good thing. That's actually a bad thing. You may be wondering, though, well, why is it a bad thing? I mean, shouldn't God just be happy with whatever they want to give him? Some of you already know the answer to that question, right? God commanded them to bring flawless animals. We can say it another way. Spotless animals. If God is so loving and benevolent, shouldn't he just be okay with what they wanted to give him? It's not a, it's not a bad question, but it's definitely a skewed question because you're seeing some incorrect things about the situation and about God himself that that affect the way you're seeing the story. First off, this isn't a widow's mite situation. This isn't that they're bringing the, the only animal they've got to give the sacrifice. This is more like Ananias and Sapphira, if you know that story. They're intentionally withholding something, trying to elicit the same response. They've, they've got better animals than this, but they're intentionally bringing the ones that they can't sell. Intentionally bringing the ones that they don't really want to eat that's not going to make them as much money, and eh, God will just be okay with that one. He should be fine. How do you think God feels about that? You want to take a straw poll real quick? We can also add a couple of very, very, very big layers to this problem. Because they were commanded to bring flawless animals for two very specific reasons. Number one, they needed to be shaped by giving first fruits. They needed to be shaped by giving first fruits. There's just really special things that happens in our hearts when we finally get to the understanding where the things that we quote-unquote own don't actually belong to us, they actually belong to God. There's this really interesting thing that happens to our posture before Him when we finally get to that point where it clicks. They needed to be shaped by the giving of first fruits. God's people needed to understand where their blessings actually came from. To see the situation as somehow you owning everything and negotiating what portion God's going to get out of it is the backwards way of looking at it, isn't it? I'm going to be getting a Christmas present from my kids next week. Think they broke into their piggy bank to get it for me? Probably not, right? They use my credit card. <laughs> like, those of you who have had kids have walked through this, right? They're going to they're gonna give me a present. It's going to say to daddy on there. Mommy wrote it, but it's going to say to daddy. It's going to have their little names on it. They didn't spend a penny. And so if the net difference is nothing, why would we go through the process? And those of you who have kids know exactly what the answer is, right? Because they need to be shaped by the act of... Guys, we're the toddler in this story, right? God's people needed to be shaped 
by the act of giving. So for the Israelites, giving of their best was an act of acknowledging who the original good giver was. They needed to give of their first fruits. And so to approach that moment in an, in an unha- underhanded way is to produce the fruit of an underhanded heart, right? God called them to give flawless animals. But that's not the whole of it because that's not even the big reason God commanded them to give flawless animals. What did verse 10 say again? That you might not kindle fire on my altar in what? What does vain mean? Pointless, right? Empty. Apparently there's a way of offering a sacrifice that's completely void of the actual point. So hey church, what, what was the, like, the entire reason God set up the Levitical sacrificial system? Atonement of sin, right? So follow me here. The perfect nature of the sacrifice communicates what's necessary about the sin that's being paid for. I'll I'll say that again. The perfect nature of the sacrifice communicates what is necessary in order for sin to be paid for. Or we can say it another way. They needed a perfect substitute to pay for their sin. Otherwise, that substitute can't pay for sin. It owes something itself. They needed a perfect substitute to pay for sin. The bringing of a perfect sacrifice was meant to teach something. Something that was incredibly important about the utter desperation of their need before God. See, we need a flawless substitute to bring peace between our sinful hearts and the perfect justice of a holy and righteous God. We need that. God set this system up. They, they practiced it for a thousand years. Like by the time we're to this point in the Old Testament, there's a lot of Old Testament in front of them, right? There's been a long time between the establishment of this, of this sacrificial system back in the days of the Exodus and the, the, the Levitical system. They, they set this up back then and have practiced this, sometimes very poorly, but they practiced this year after year after year after year for a millennia. And it was all meant to teach one massive truth. That you need a flawless sacrifice to stand in the gap between you and God. And a thousand years in, man, they have no clue what's going on. They have missed the point year after year after year. And instead, we find them in this story bringing the cheapest route possible. They found the animal they want the least and would require the least from them. And in a way that just sloughs it off, oh God, if he's so loving, he should be all right with that. He shouldn't care. Hey guys, I think God cares. Because the sacrifice is a shadow of something much, much, much eternally bigger. And perfection is absolutely on the line that that thing shadows. Perfection is absolutely on the line with that thing that's coming. And so the lazy bull, the it shouldn't matter sheep, points to something about Jesus that isn't true. And that is a big 
problem. That's not all that's going on. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. We ain't done. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Skip down to verse 7 for for time's sake. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I will make you you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Okay, so here we see God give an indictment for the priest for misleading the, the people of God, for teaching false things about God. And if you're wondering if that puts a healthy terror in me, the answer is yes, absolutely it does all day, every day. Like that... That scares the mess out of me. I, I don't want to be guilty of that. Anybody else? <laughs> now look at verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he, is no, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Well, because the Lord has, was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Okay, so here the priests begin to complain. They, they start whining about the fact that God is, for some weird reason, not excited about their corrupted sacrifice. Why wouldn't you take this from us? And so what does God do? Oh, you want to keep talking? Let's keep talking. And so he piles another on. He starts talking about their faithlessness in marriage. You want, you want to keep this going? Because i got a few more things in my pocket I can pull up. And the short of it is, is really this. God's people have dropped the ball in every single possible way. Issue after issue, time after time, God's people have fallen short of anything resembling what God has actually called them to. Yeah, they're doing a lot of good religious stuff, even things God commanded them, but the things that matter fall flat on their face. And so God raises up Malachi to bring these things to light. So Malachi, I think, is a pretty cool guy. But we have other questions to answer this morning, don't we? For instance, what made Malachi a seemingly bad choice? The answer? We have no idea. (laughs) No clue. We know less about Malachi than we did about Ezra last week. All we know about Malachi is his name. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know what he did right before all this. We got nothing. Malachi is the guy who transfers God's hypothetical dialogue between him and his people to the people. That's Malachi's job. But based on everything that we've learned throughout this series, right? Like anybody think Malachi's walking flawlessly? Yeah probably safer to assume that he was a jerk about something. I mean, that's God's MO, right? Use the guy who you'd never expect to do the big thing. So we learn over and over and over again throughout the course of this series, no matter what character we've pulled out of the hat, this is always the case. The God uses the one that everyone else is going, him? Her? Probably true about Malachi too. What about question number three? How did God redeem Malachi? Well, we established last week with Ezra that 
even though we don't know their specific sin, that the, the, the reality that we are separated from God is a big deal for all people, right? And so the, the reality that God would use any of us at all, Malachi included, in any kind of way for his purposes is a great, incredible, redemptive work. And so, despite our sin, despite our feeble frame, despite our obvious lack of seeing the big picture, that God would say, I want you, I will use you, I will use you to bless others, that's a big deal. And so we can rephrase the question this way, how did God use Malachi? And the answer to that is by giving him the name Malachi. You're welcome, pack it up, go home. So what's special about Malachi? Malachi. Malachi means my messenger in Hebrew. Malak, messenger. Adding the I as a suffix on the end, in this instance is not always the case, but in this instance makes it possessive. My messenger. God raised up a prophet named my messenger. So what message did he give him? Right? I mean, isn't that the question? What message did God give Malachi? Glad you asked. Verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Uh Uh-oh. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so follow me here. They simultaneously celebrate evil things by calling them good and accuse God of failing to act justly. How do you think God feels about that? Right? That'll end well for them. They misrepresent God, calling evil things good, and they cry, where were you when things don't seem fair to them? And if you think that sounds insane, it does. But also do yourself a favor, and please don't turn on the news next time some disaster happens. Because that's exactly our culture too, right? We call evil things good and we say, where were you when things don't go our way? Never been guilty of that either. And our culture is just as crazy. Now, you might be surprised to learn that God doesn't take that accusation lightly. So he raises up a prophet named my messenger to announce the coming of another messenger in the future. And this messenger is one who will prepare the way of the Lord. Who are we talking about? Nope. John the Baptist. Who's the one whose job is to prepare, make way, people prepared, make way for the Lord? John the Baptist. God raises up um, a guy named my messenger to announce the coming of a future messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord. And John the Baptist has one job to do. What's John the Baptist's job? To get people ready for who? Jesus. And here, in verse 1, we see that he's a messenger of the covenant. He will prepare the way for another messenger. Did you see that in the, in the text? Let's get it up here. 
Verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. So, this future messenger is going to point the way to an even greater messenger, Jesus. A messenger who actually has the authority to carry out covenants. To finalize them and bring them to their completion. God raises up a prophet named my messenger to point to a future messenger who will make ready the people for the great messenger. Does that seem complicated to you? Seems complicated to me, I'll just be honest. Not complicated at all, no. Not a bit. But notice that he doesn't say he's going to come to the temple. He says he's going to come to what? The earth, his temple. He's going to come to his temple. This great messenger is going to come to his temple. And this is the context that we get to answer our fourth question for the morning. How is the gospel preached through Malachi? But wait a second, right? I mean, God was just accused of of things he's not guilty of, right? I mean, he was misrepresented. They're, they're calling evil things good, and they accused him of being unjust, and we thought that God was going to do something about this. And all he's done is promise that he's coming soon to his temple. Thought he was going to deal with these guys. The answer is he has. Because the Lord suddenly showing up to his temple is not necessarily good news. It's actually very, very bad news if you're not on God's team. It's actually incredibly, incredibly terrible news. The gospel is preached through Malachi by God promising the perfect justice he was just accused of not having. Behold, he will suddenly come to his temple. Let's keep reading. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Both of those things are things that bring purity through pain. If you don't know what they are, a refiner's fire is when you, when you throw the gold or the silver or some other precious metal in the big pot and you light the fire really high and it boils off everything, melts everything down and the impurities flow to the surface and you scrape the junk off, right? And you're left with a pure gold, a pure silver, a pure whatever. Right? Fuller soap, it's basically lye. Right? It's how you bleached sheep's wool white after you sheared them. Because sheep are dirty, man. They get into everything. All right? you got to bleach that stuff back to being white. And so use this incredibly caustic stuff, stuff that will eat your hands to pieces if you allow it to. And so both of these things are, are word pictures of bringing purity through intense pain. And God says, when I show up to my temple, I'm going to burn off the impurity. I'm going to bleach out the dirt. That's not all he does. Keep reading. The Lord will deal with 
the justice issue when he suddenly comes to his temple. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Verse 5, and, I, and then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Did you catch the range of the people that God's about to judge? Sorcerers and adulterers. Liars and those who oppress the sojourner. Everybody's in these categories. So, follow me here. The Bible teaches clearly resolutely and unapologetically that there is coming a day when the cosmic king who reigns eternally with perfect justice will give everyone exactly what they deserve. It's just what the Bible says. There's coming a day when the king of perfect justice will give everyone exactly what they deserve. And the question laid before all people on that day, whether it's you, me, the little old lady that lives down the street from you, the question that is put before all people on that day will be simple. What do you deserve from this judge? What do you deserve from this infinitely holy God? Despite how you see yourself, I mean, we can just lay all our cards on the table this morning. You're biased. And the God of infinite justice doesn't need your opinion on the matter. He's got it. Despite how you see yourself, and it doesn't matter whatever wishful thinking you might have, because he's not the God of wishful thinking. He's the God of infinitely perfect justice. What will you deserve on that day, on that day, the problem of our sin and the problem of our shame and the problem of our separation from God will be laid bare. It will be weighed, it will be measured, and it will be found wanting by God who leaves no stone unturned. And if the problem of our sin is left there, if it's left there, there's nothing else to add to the equation. We're in a lot of trouble because, man, I know my heart. I know what I deserve. I don't want justice on that day. I beg God for anything but justice on that day. But we also haven't read verse 6 yet. Because not only does God promise His perfect justice, but He also reveals the absolute scandal of His grace and covenant love for His people. Look at verse 6 with me. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Hear me, church. Until you understand this truth, you will never understand the gospel in its fullness. Seriously, God's 
faithfulness to his people has nothing to do with their faithfulness back to him. God has declared them to be his people. Therefore, he loves them. They didn't earn this. They're Jacob in this story, not Esau. God says, in spite of you, I will love you. In spite of you, I will bless you. In spite of you, I will save you. I will carry you through. You know what you deserve from me? It ain't pretty. But in spite of that, I am yours. Like Jacob and Esau at the beginning of our time, we are all by default in the same category as Esau was. Jacob didn't do anything to earn God's love. He's just the recipient of it. God preserves his people, not based on their character, but upon his character. And if you're honest enough with yourself this morning, you know exactly how desperately you need that to be true. Because my character ain't enough. I'm, I'm type A enough to want to try to prove that it is sometimes. There's these moments that I don't like to talk about at parties where I'm more honest. And I, I'm in trouble. But thanks be to God, it's not on me. It's not on me. Because God is exactly as faithful as he is perfectly just. God is exactly as infinitely faithful to the, those he is declared to love as he is infinitely just of those who deserve his wrath. He promises no less for you if you belong to him. Promises exactly that. But, but wait, 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 how does that even work, right? How can God, who is perfectly just, just toss aside the justice that's deserved? If God is truly just, how can he just withhold his wrath? And the answer, church, is that he doesn't withhold his wrath. He redirects it. He redirects it. Behold, he will suddenly come to his temple. God shows up. See, what we celebrate year after year after year at Christmas time is really just the first part of the greatest part of his story. God's great redemption story has all of these pieces that we've been looking at throughout the Old Testament for this last year. But man, he is building up to something massive here. Jesus shows up on the scene. God puts on flesh, dwells among us. He lives the sinless life that neither you or I are capable of living. And he is that spotless lamb that we need to make payment for our sin. He goes joyfully and obediently to the cross to suffer the wrath of God for you and me. He scoffs at its shame. For the joy that was set before him, he endures it. He pays the debt of our sin and he defeats death itself by rising victoriously over the grave. So I would imagine that the question that many people have is why would he do all this? I mean, that's the question I have if I read it honestly. I mean, why? I mean, come on. Why? Why would God pick Adam, the weak-willed husband, 
Noah the drunk, Abraham the pagan liar, Sarah the woman too old to have a kid, Isaac the copycat, Jacob the trickster, Leah the ugly sister, Joseph the arrogant teenager, Moses the weak-speaking murderer, Joshua the lazy general, incredible sinful judges like Gideon and Samson, why would he choose Job the bad theologian, Ruth the child-sacrificing widow, David the murdering adulterer, Solomon the hedonist, Elijah the bipolar, Gomer the wannabe prostitute, Isaiah the self-righteous, Jeremiah the hesitant, Ezra the incomplete preacher, and Malachi the messenger before the messenger before the messenger. Why would he do that? Well, the answer, church, is actually found in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. Here's an idea. How about we read that? For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For in my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Why would God do it this way? The answer is incredibly simple. For his glory. For his glory. That's why he does this. The world will be dumbfounded for millennia to come. We will celebrate forever and ever and ever the God who saw fit to do things this way. He will receive the glory he is due. There's one overarching theme to our series. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that God raised up Malachi to be a shadow of a much, much greater Malachi to come in Jesus. A my messenger who doesn't simply carry God's word, but is God's word made flesh. The story of God's no small deal. It is easily the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. He is in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason so that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. This is the story of God. So how do we respond to God's word today? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. And you do that best by pressing in through his word. There are other things he's given us, but you do it best through the scriptures. Man, consider starting with the book of Malachi. Like, ain't nobody else telling you to start with the Old Testament prophets? Well, we will. Why? Because we genuinely believe that God has given it to us for the explicit purpose of making himself known to us. Go after him there. Start with Malachi. We can take another step into this. Maybe Malachi's story is a lot like your story you got a bunch of religious things going on around you. You ever stopped and asked the question, what God actually wants from you? Forget about all the stuff that gets thrown on the pile. What does God actually want from you? What does he expect from you? The folks in Malachi's day, man, they were, they were ticking all the boxes they knew how to tick. But they were blind to what their actual need was. They were blind to it. You ever, you ever just stopped and said, God, what do you actually want? Have you, you, you pursued the answer to that question in, in his word? Man, what a great season to slow down and embrace the angst and press in deep. Maybe God has given us seasons and calendars for purposes exactly like that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Today's a good day to repent and lean in. If that's what you need to do. But I'll be down here to talk with anybody that wants to talk.
If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You could have found all kinds of other stuff to do on a Sunday morning. Listen, you can respond to God's word today too, and you do that by meeting the one that this story is all about, Jesus. By repenting of your sin and coming to Jesus alone for salvation. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Maybe today's the day that you're ready to walk in the grace that he's offering to you. So if you want to know what that next step looks like or want help walking through that next step, again, I'm down here. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the story of Malachi. Thank you for being a God who isn't impressed with the religious action. You see right through it. For the good of us, you see right through it. God, I, I keep trying over and over and over again to hide what's really going on in my heart with the religious action. I'm just dumb enough to think that that's going to work the next time. Rip that away from me. Rip it away. Call me to yourself. Call me yours. Force me, if necessary, to find my rest in you. God, would you save people today? Draw people to repentance. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?